0: In late 1905, Tom Jenkins was the champion, but was kept away from the ring by his coaching position at West Point. Will he fight to get away from a steady paycheck and back into competition? I mean, would you? Either way, this is the story of Tom Jenkins, Part 8. <laughs> Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro Wrestling History Nerds. You did it. You're here. I mean, you're there. But you're listening. At least I hope you're listening. Did you press the button by accident? Is the mute button on? Goodness gracious, I hope not. What am I talking about? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling booker. I am a pro wrestling promoter. Sometimes I'm a pro wrestling ring announcer. But more importantly for today i am a pro wrestling historian and we are here to plumb the deep riches the lore the tales the truths the lies of the history of professional wrestling and there is plenty of that to go around especially when we get into a story in this much detail because as you noticed when you looked up the episode this is part eight of the story of tom jenkins This is one of the most in-depth things I will probably ever do about a single person and why am I doing that? Partially because I find this man fascinating. I find his career fascinating. I find his context and history fascinating because he's one of those guys that gets kind of, I don't know, glossed over because he's one of those kind of bridges between the 19th and the 20th century. He's that guy who was the the man in catches as catch can wrestling in America post you know the Evan Lewis Farmer Burns Heights and right as Gotch and Hackenschmidt you know began their rivalry so for a number of years he was the best wrestler in the United States he was the biggest wrestling star in the United States he was the highest mountain that a competitor would need to hike in order to possibly get a title shot That metaphor was labored, but I'm leaving it in because why not? But when you look at like a survey history of professional wrestling, usually Jenkins gets like a paragraph and a half, mostly about how he had a glass eye to make him more of a novelty act than anything else. Otherwise, he becomes background noise to a man like Frank Gotch. And that's understandable if you're trying to simplify history. The problem is... History is not simple. It is complicated. People are complicated. Societies are complicated. So why should this be any different? Hence my desire to get in-depth as possible. And apparently from the numbers, I can tell that you are equally fascinated as I am. Otherwise, you just download the episode and don't listen to it. Still, thanks for the download numbers, but that would be hurtful. The other reason I'm going into this is because I covered a lot of the pioneer era back in the early days of this podcast, but I didn't do it very well. I would read history books written by other authors, and I would take their work and their opinions at face value, and that was a bit of a mistake. And that's not saying that those writers, those historians, those people were bad, did bad work, had bad assumptions about who was what and doing why and where. It's simply they didn't have the research resources that I have today. Back in those days, you would go to the local library and you would ask to look at the microfiche and you would be able to scan through whatever that specific library or archive had on hand, as opposed to today when you are able to access archives online for papers coast to coast or even across the uh, the ocean, and look at European papers. Hopefully it's a language you speak, otherwise it's very confusing. But we have access to more information, more source material, to make a better big picture story of the history. Because if you only had an article or two, you could have gotten the wrongest information possible. Because not everybody who was covering wrestling understood wrestling or knew who these people were or spelled their names right or even put the right names on there sometimes they would have the times wrong sometimes they would have the finish wrong sometimes they would have the winner wrong sometimes they felt oh this person's probably going to win and the last train back to cleveland or whatever is in about an hour so i need to get out of here i'm just going to send it in as is whatever who cares and You could be looking at those papers and if you're looking at that exclusively well guess what you now have the wrong information that you're plugging into a big picture story so you're drawing wrong conclusions and history is ultimately storytelling a historian is taking his opinions his hypotheses much like a scientist and applying it to the story he is telling through the facts he has uncovered and correlated and that is what a historian does trying to present the best most truthful story as is humanly possible so that's what i'm doing now as opposed to what i was doing a couple years ago um i just wanted to revisit these people but i wanted to do it through a different lens hence instead of doing evan the strangler lewis again i did his promoter and his manager parson davies and his famous opponent the terrible turk instead of doing william muldoon again i went through the lens of clarence whistler and like i said the gotch and hackenschmidt series from earlier in this podcast i do not like them i think they're bad research a lot of bad information a lot of information that Really should have been there that wasn't but again That's what uh, history also teaches us as we keep learning. We make the picture better deeper richer whatever Maybe someday I will do another Frank Gotch episode, but there are so many different and More obscure and more interesting stories on my plate right now So I'm just really glad I got to spend so much time in the early 1900s through the one-eyed Vision and lens of Tom Jenkins, and that's where we're here today So to recap where we were Jenkins was the champion, but he made a trip to England A lot of people thought it was to seek another match with Hackenschmidt Maybe it was and he just kept that kind of quiet Maybe it wasn't a lot of the descriptors on it was claiming he was just there on a holiday there on a pleasure trip but he did have a number of matches. Most of them ended in kind of schmozzy goofiness with a DQ or or a forfeit or an injury, a lot of things where he lost without losing, kind of about what you could really do with somebody when they're visiting from another country and they have a title and it's 1905. Upon his return, he found out that President Theodore Roosevelt was a big fan and wanted him as the boxing and wrestling coach at West Point, the prestigious military academy. And how could he say no? First of all, it's the president offering you a job. How do you turn that down? Jenkins was also getting a little bit older. He was in his late 30s, rocketing towards 40, and that's when you start looking at the end of your wrestling career and this is a perfect landing pad for that. It's the perfect place to apply his skills. It's a steady paycheck. His family can just come with him. They stay in one place. He doesn't need to travel. He doesn't need to compete. He doesn't need to, you know, make the wheelings and dealings in the wrestling world to to, uh, put money in his bank account. It really is a prime situation for him, but not so much for everyone else who wanted a crack at him because he still had the championship. And everyone from Frank Gotch to Fred Beal to Frank Rune, they all looked at him like he was the biggest dick on earth because he took the title and took it with him into possible retirement. You know, he's settling down. He has a teaching position, but he still has the championship belt and he's not actively defending it. In wrestling that is one of the cardinal sins which is taking the belt with you taking the ball and going home however you want to think of things much like William Muldoon did William Muldoon retired undefeated he retired as champion he kind of appointed one of his students uh, Ernst Rober as the kind of de facto champion and said okay now he's the champion because I like him best and of course Robert couldn't really defend it against Evan Lewis and that's the problem with championship lineages because it needs to be a winner-loser scenario for it to have any legitimacy. And sometimes if you just pull that one piece out of the chain, well, guess what? The chain now isn't worth a shit. And that almost happened to the championship in the United States. Granted, there were so many different champions. There was catch-as-catch-can, there was the Greco-Roman Championship. There was the mixed rules where you do catch-as-catch-can and Greco-Roman. There were weight classes. I mean, it is convoluted and then people would even lose their titles, but still advertise themselves as a champion or a promoter would advertise them as a champion for the sake of selling tickets. Even in these days, a title was mostly a storytelling prop, just like it is today. But how was Tom Jenkins getting along at West Point? Well, from all accounts, fairly well. From the November 15th, 1905 Buffalo Courier, Tom Jenkins' strenuous life, West Point students have a lot of fun with champion mat artist. Jenkins was in New York. Quote, I had to come in to buy mats, he said that bunch is so strenuous at west point that they wear out about a mat a week if i hadn't had to come i wouldn't be here you bet it's the simple life for me now no more broadways no more sporting and no more matches i've settled down for good and all his former manager g orlando whedon claimed quote i figure that he won't live long under the strain he's not exactly frail But nobody can wrestle 460 stout kids every day and last long. Every blessed man jack of them tackles him, and there's some pretty husky guys there, too. I kind of picture it, you know, I mean, you have to imagine, like, how much fun it must be to just stay in one place and coach a bunch of very eager students. You know, I mean, again, if you're looking at a way to exit the wrestling industry, that's about the best case scenario in those days. December 3rd, 1905, article in numerous papers, like the Cincinnati Inquirer, ran the story, wrestlers take care of themselves, both and on and off the mat. That's why they last so long. Tom Jenkins was listed among the wrestlers whose long careers are attributed to abstaining from alcohol, which makes me wonder just how sincere his endorsement of Duffy's malt whiskey actually was. And those ads continue to haunt my research, Do you know how hard it is to search online newspaper archives when this goddamn ad is the first half dozen things to pop up on any given date for months while searching Tom Jenkins' name? Poor me. I know. By mid-December, the wrestling world was fixated on two important questions. Will Jenkins defend his title? And if not, will he relinquish claims to being the champ so the sport can move on? Both Gotch and Beale became very vocal about this, and the press was beginning to join in as well. In the Baltimore Sun on December 28th, Harvey Parker, Fred Beale's manager, was once again in the news claiming that a proper beale jenkins match was in the works, possibly in Madison Square Garden, demanding that a 24-foot ring be used because their previous private match took place, quote, in an enclosure about half that size, and Beal got the worse of the bargain. Granted, Parker numerous times claimed that that match was a certainty or was in the works, and it turned out he was full of shit pretty much every single time. The Perth Amboy Evening News on December 28, 1905, published Wrestling Again. Tom Jenkins and Dan McLeod set to have a match at the Empire Theatre in Cleveland. Quote, if Jenkins stays 15 minutes, he will get $100. If he should throw McLeod within 30 minutes, he will get another $100. According to the Buffalo Times on December 30th, quote, They wrestled for 30 minutes, but Jenkins couldn't do a thing with a sturdy Scott, though he tried his level best. And this begs the question, was this a work or a shoot? Was Jenkins just a fading athlete on the wrong side of 40, or close to 40, or 40 exactly, depending on which version of his uh, birthday you want to acknowledge? And who was too busy coaching to compete? Or was he just doing a job without looking too bad in the process? It's a case where Dan McLeod is even older than he was. He's been around longer. And Jenkins won the long series between them, so it seems weird for jenkins who is the champion to come in and have to do an outlast him kind of thing it seems weird but it also again just could be a payday could be his way of keeping active enough to legitimize him as the title holder it's kind of like how studios would churn out a really bad you know superhero or horror movie every few years just to maintain the intellectual property rights Otherwise, they would expire because they're just sitting on the shelf. Either way, according to the Vancouver Providence, 2,000 spectators watched the contest. Which means that whatever the drama backstage, in the scene, the politicking, whatever, there was enough interest in the men themselves that people would buy tickets to see them compete. On January 5th, 1906, the Asheville Citizen Times The latest yarn is that Donaldson is Tom Jenkins, speculating that Oli Donaldson, a mysterious Swedish wrestler, was none other than Tom Jenkins under a fake name. The main roadblock for this argument was Jenkins having a mustache, even in recent photos, but as one goofball was quoted as saying, well, couldn't he shave it off if he wanted to ring in? On January 9th, Charles Olsen beat Oli Danielson, who, again, was not tom jenkins i mean this guy wasn't even working under a mask or anything and people are like oh that's clearly tom jenkins you know under a different name why would tom jenkins need to wrestle under a different name unless he was sneaking out of west point at night which is something you would actually see many years later with military wrestlers sneaking out working under fake names working under masks to protect their identities But these were the days of trains. You couldn't exactly sneak out, get halfway across the country, perform, and sneak back by dawn. So, yeah, probably not the same guy. And the shit-talking with Fred Beal was still in the press. The January 6th Waterbury Democrat quoted Jenkins as saying, I will secure a few days vacation if I can get a match with Fred Beal. But I understand that Parker has been in Cleveland saying that I would not wrestle Beale again. Though many thought, much like a writer for the January 11th St. Joseph News Press, that it was all bluster. Quote, Wrestlers Tom Jenkins and Fred Beale are talking like a pair of champagne-soaked prima donnas. As a matter of fact, it looks as though neither of these Matt artists is anxious to meet the other in a test of supremacy. Quite the zinger. Love it. On January 15th, the Waterbury Democrat claimed that Jenkins was ducking Beal now and that Jenkins would only wrestle Beal privately while Harvey Parker, Beal's agent, wanted it in Madison Square Garden. But the sporting press was, to no surprise, fixated on another Jenkins-Frank Gotch match. In the January 11th, 1906 Quad City Times, Farmer Burns was quoted as saying that if Gosch had a two-month camp with him, he'd beat Jenkins. The same story claimed that Burns had a 20-year-old habit of buying an acre of land for around $20 to $30 every time he won a match. But now that it's nearly $100 an acre, he continued to do so. Buy land. They're not making it anymore, as the saying goes. This is actually something, it, same thing with Frank Gotch you would see him buying as much land in Iowa as possible. So by the time he was even remotely close to where he wanted to retire, he had an enormous farm. He had an estate, practically. An estate if you, you know, grew corn on it or whatever the fuck. But an impressive investment nonetheless. Again, it's interesting to see that Frank Gotch-Jenkins rivalry. They've had plenty of matches already. But there's always an angle between two top stars for another match, so long as the build-up is done right, so long as the press work is done right, so long as the shit-talking is done right, and it's in a different city, a different market, it's the days before you could watch it on YouTube or see GIFs on Twitter, so by all means, take that match with the proper amount of trash-talking with an interesting story, take it to a different city, and clean the fuck up. The Waterbury Democrat on January 19th covered Jenkins moving his family up to West Point. His wife and two kids made the move from Cleveland to New York. Now that Tom's position seems solid enough to do so. And this is something you see in wrestling to this day. You'll see big stars sign with WWE just so they can move their family to Florida and spend most of their time there. It's not an easy life being an athlete or an artist or a musician or anything on the road, especially when you hit the age of having a wife, having kids, and actually giving a shit about them. It's hard to be away from the people you love, especially when you start getting a little bit older. Travel is not easy on you. Being away from your support system is not easy on you. So again, this was quite the boon to Tom Jenkins to be able to be stationary, to be around his family. Assuming he liked his family. I kind of feel like he did. Or at least he didn't know them well enough to dislike them. Because he was traveling so often. March 13th. 1906. The Buffalo Morning Express. Tom Jenkins will come from West Point to wrestle Grune. Speculating that Jenkins will compete. But not against Gotch or Beale, But against the German Fred Grune, Who was often described as the physical equal of Hackenschmidt and as the British catch-as-catch-can champion. And on the same date, the Waterbury Democrat published, When Tom Jenkins, who claims to be America's foremost wrestler, arose yesterday morn, he was very wroth to discover that another grappler, Fred Gruen by name, had cast slurs on his fair name by declaring that the American champion was studiously sidestepping a match with him which is some old-timey, tough-talkin' words. The overheated wrath of Jenkins finally found an outlet in the following statement, which he sent to the New York world. Quote, I will wrestle Groon at any time and place that he may suggest. I know that I can beat him, and if he can get any money to back him, I will cover any side bet he cares to make on the outcome of the match. The Daily Utah State Journal on March 15, 1906 stated, Giant Teuton would annihilate Tom Jenkins. He is nearly six feet tall and weighs 210 pounds has good record It's funny to think of a nearly six foot 210 pound man as like an unbeatable monster. I mean you stack that up against a guy like Brock Lesnar for example to kind of bridge the real fighting real wrestling and pro wrestling Venn diagram and I don't know if all of this trash talking was legitimate if it was planned what the original idea was because yes he did have the title yes he probably knew he needed to drop it yes he probably wanted to take matches every now and then when he could but everybody's jumping the gun everybody wants a shot at him and as always in sports both pre-arranged and for real the best way to get somebody's attention is to hurt their feelings in the media So when you have somebody like Fred Gruen, who actively comes out talking shit, insulting him, calling him a coward, saying he's sidestepping him. Yeah, that's going to piss off Jenkins. But it also puts the ball in his court to either do business or actually step up and challenge him. So either way, it's an effective strategy to get what you want meanwhile many papers were reporting that frank gotch had signed a contract to wrestle any man the missouri athletic commission may select in kansas city the rumor mill kept bringing jenkins name as that opponent gotch himself sent a challenge to the new york mail printed on march 23, 1906 quote i challenge tom jenkins to wrestle me for the american championship straight catches catch can match police gazette rules Referee to be mutually agreed upon, or his selection left to a committee of six sporting authorities, such men as Bat Masterson, Parson Davies, Al Smith, etc., bids to be invited from prominent clubs of the country. Match to be before club offerings best inducement in the matter of guarantee or percentage, no matter what city may make such offer. Match for a thousand aside, if Jenkins wishes money to be posted with a stakeholder of established reputation before the public to be assured of genuine nature of bet by agreement for winner to devote a certain percentage to same public charity of course i am one of the many dissatisfied with the results of my last meeting with jenkins in madison square garden not merely because i lost the decision but because of the condition which connived at the results Jenkins has kept out of the limelight in America pretty well since last spring. I have wrestled about 50 matches in the West and Middle West, and South, and Canada since last fall, and nobody is putting me down. Jenkins may hold the empty title of Champion American Wrestler, which he took from me in New York, but although he cannot own the title at present, the man the sporting public of the country knows is the real Champion America, with a fair field and no favor, is yours truly. Frank Alvin Gotch. The New York Evening World, March 26, 1906. Jenkins matched with Fred Gruen. Men will meet for heavyweight championship here on April 10th. The match was signed in the Evening World office by Jenkins manager Harry Pollock and Gruen's manager Professor Attila, and was set to take place at Sulzer's Harlem River Casino on Tuesday, April 10th. So now we have this trifecta. We have Gotch challenging Jenkins, Groon challenging Jenkins, where both men want the title that Jenkins is holding up. Groon has to be that foreign adversary who needs to prove to America that he is the best and he can crush the champion. Gotch wants to reclaim the title that it was his. But now we have Jenkins like, almost like having grown in his way to prove himself against Gotch to reach that, you know, greatest-of-all-time stature. So now it's not just matches, it's a story. The Montreal Gazette, on March 26, 1906, the Missouri Athletic Club announced that Frank Gotch has agreed to wrestle man they select, as I just talked about, but saying now Jenkins has agreed to step in for $1,500 as a guarantee, expenses and a side bet so things are progressing Jenkins at least so long as everyone's telling the truth is looking to defend his belt looking to get matches it's just a matter if they will come together on the 27th the Buffalo Morning Express in an interview with gotch the former champ claimed that he was quote delighted to see the other day that Jenkins had decided to emerge from retirement and immediately responded to his appearance with a challenge In the Asheville, North Carolina Citizen Times on March 27th, Jenkins reminded the world that he was still the champion. The Buffalo Enquirer, also on the 27th, recounted some of the details of the article signed between Jenkins and Fred Gruen that the men will wrestle early next month with a novel clause that should prevent the match from being tiresome. The article claimed that the contract was signed at Solzer's Casino, and the men would meet on April 10th, two out of three falls, for 50% of the gate, which was to be split 75-25. You do the math. The stipulation was that if an hour goes by without a fall, the referee gets to make a decision like a judge for whomever he thought did more of that round trying to push for a faster paced match with both men trying to finish. Not a bad idea. It keeps a match from going forever. It keeps a match from tiring everybody out, both in the ring and in the audience. It's a better entertainment-driven gimmick so that people will not leave being exhausted. People will leave hopefully having seen a proper finish and not being so tired that they never want to buy wrestling tickets ever again. Jenkins was still represented by Harry Pollock and Gruen was represented by Professor Attila because, of course, he would be. Meanwhile, the entire sporting press was discussing the near certainty of another Jenkins versus Gotch match once Jenkins got through with Gruen. Gruen, though highly touted and advertised as the monster that he was and is the British champion wasn't really given much of a chance by the papers you gotta love pro wrestling where you can you can overlook certain opponents so long as the story is being told properly, you don't expect to see the WWE champ lose on Raw when they're already advertising him for a big pay-per-view I also noticed a tonal shift in how Jenkins is described at this point in his career very much along the lines of Old Lion fighting off the Young Challengers. Jenkins was reportedly training with the military cadets at West Point. Meanwhile, according to the Patterson New Jersey News, on March 30th, Groon contacted Jenkins' old nemesis, Dan McLeod, to help him train. But fate was about to throw a monkey wrench in these plans. The Topeka Daily Herald on April 4th announced that the Jenkins-Groon match was off, Due to Grun injuring himself in a weightlifting exhibition, he wrenched an abdominal muscle while trying to lift 340 pounds. And at first, I had a hard time verifying this through other media, because news traveled slow in these days. The same articles that announced the Grun jenkins match being official were still recirculating in smaller market papers, as though it were brand new news, after Groon was hurt and pulled out of the match. So at the time, more papers were saying this match is happening tomorrow and will be awesome Then there were papers saying that he was hurt and the match was off. And one that seemed cruel at that point was from the Perth Amboy Evening News on April 7th, claiming that Groon was so confident regarding the Jenkins match that he was now negotiating a match with Gotch. So now what? jenkins was still the champ was still on the market as a wrestler while coaching at west point obviously there was gotch but fred beal and Jod pining were nipping at his heels in the press and the press started recontextualizing jenkins his name comes up more as propping up the new batch of wrestlers like pining and beal who almost beat jenkins or how they could beat a mutual opponent faster than jenkins could But the media darling was now Frank Gotch, despite Jenkins holding the title, or holding up the title, depending on whom you asked. Gotch was exciting, young, handsome, good at riling up the fans and moving tickets. He was everything a superstar needed to be. And Jenkins was just sliding into Randy Couture in the mid-2000s territory, a man past his prime who still wins matches and titles, but it's more about who will eventually take him down more than it is about his own merits. Speaking of aging well, the Valley County News on April 13th 1906 covered the now 44-year-old Martin Farmer Burns, who was still wrestling here and there. He was in fantastic condition, lived on his farm near Big Rock, Iowa, and was training his two boys Raymond and Charlie. Burns was one of those men who just never went away, but never overstayed his welcome. He kind of came and went. He stayed in prim condition. He wrestled here and there. He coached. He held a lot of positions, but he was never one of those superstars that just held onto the limelight well past his uh, prime, well past his time. When he would reappear to compete, perform, however you want to put it, he still deserved that spot on his own merits. The Montreal Gazette on April 14th 1906 covered the lead up to a 27-man tournament not sure how those numbers work but whatever in Montreal they hoped to lure Gotch and Jenkins to compete. Jenkins didn't make it I'm sure even if he wanted to the schedule of coaching at West Point meant he couldn't sneak away for a week or two for one of these long tournaments. Gotch on the other hand showed up won every match and thus the tournament. I started going down quite the rabbit hole of research on this event, but then I took a deep breath, reminded myself that it has nothing to do with Tom Jenkins, the subject of this series, which is now going on way longer than I originally planned. So yes, eventually I'll go into depth on that tournament, it just won't be today. The Omaha Daily News and other papers on April 15th, 1906 announced the arrival of Karakhanov, the Turk, who was in America to challenge Gotch, Jenkins, and Beal. The terrible Turk trope was still alive and well, it just wasn't the same box office draw that it had been even four years earlier. On Tuesday, April 24th, Fred Beal defeated John Pining and then called out both Jenkins and Gotch. It is Hard to overstate what a surging star Fred Beale was at this point. He was a legit grappler. He was pure fire in the ring. He was aggressive. He was hungry. And he had a manager who was amazing at talking shit. Parker was one of those great mouthpiece managers. Much like what Billy Sandow was for Ed Lewis 15 years later. He was able to talk himself into a position that he legitimately deserved and legitimately earned. But when you have a good manager talking a blue streak of shit in the press, you get there a little bit faster. The Washington Post and many other papers published an article on April 29th. Wrestler's careers of long duration. Another one of these pieces you see pretty regularly. We already talked about one earlier in this episode where... People are fascinated at how long a wrestler's career lasts, how long they can compete, how long they appear, how deep into their lives they go, and how well-preserved they tend to be. Because grappling, especially worked grappling, can keep competitors active as long as they look good and feel like competing. This is true of legitimate grapplers, where men like Dan Severn and Randy Couture won UFC titles way past their prime and pro wrestlers still being active at the highest level possible in their 40s. An old Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach of mine once said, fighting is a career, jiu-jitsu is a lifestyle. The same can be said of wrestling, where the body mechanics keep you sharp, far past your athletic prime, and the exercise keeps your body working at a high level into old age. It also helps that most competitive athletes get into the habit of eating properly, watching out for injuries taking care of themselves and tended not to drink or smoke and then you stack that up against you know baseball players and boxers of the same day who by the time they're in their 40s are massively overweight smoking cigars every day drunk to the point of embarrassment because they were living the good life because a boxer would only need to fight you know a couple times a year once they get to the highest level Baseball, you know, you don't really need to be a super athlete. You have to be athletic, of course, but the training is completely different. Meanwhile, wrestlers were going, you know, sometimes every week, sometimes twice a week, sometimes three times a week. So there really was no off season. There was no capacity to get fat, get lazy, take some time off without your career and your look going terribly wrong. But I digress. The Kansas City Star on May 13, 1906, had a huge announcement. Gotch and Jenkins sign. We'll wrestle in Convention Hall, May 23rd. The same paper, the next day, claimed that Gotch would be arriving at St. Louis soon to begin training. Jenkins would continue to train with his cadets at West Point and intended to retire as champion after beating Gotch. In a legitimate sport, as a fighter, as a grappler, as a boxer... One thing you never want to do is only train with your students. There is a very good reason for that. If you dumped all your knowledge into somebody, that means they don't know more than you do. You need somebody who has different perspectives. You need somebody who has new ideas. You need somebody who is going to push you in a way you've never been pushed before. You need people to wrestle with who aren't in awe of you. You need to have people who Are hungry to whoop your ass and instead of not wanting to embarrass their coach in front of everyone else so it is a strategic mistake Um, not naming names but once upon a time a early UFC champ came out of retirement to fight a more modern fighter at that era and the old timer pretty much just trained with his students he didn't bring in outside help he didn't have a coach that was above him come in and put him through his paces And to no surprise, he got his ass whooped. But this match was big news because I could actually find news about it. What does that mean? Well, since the Gruen match fell apart, Jenkins was harder and harder to find info about. I'm sure he was happy and busy at West Point, but the headlines about him dwindled down to one or two a day, and then occasionally none. But once another match with Gotch was official, Everyone was talking about it. Everyone was talking about him Another thing that made researching Jenkins more difficult in this era was a British boxer with the same name becoming more famous and Yes, this confused the hell out of me because I am not very bright It was very confusing to find that Tom Jenkins Threw hands and beat the shit out of somebody until I read another article or two and then that cleared it up So yeah, so yes Different man, different sport, exact same name, put me in the same position as the Duffy's Whiskey ads where it just made the researching go a little bit slower. Poor me. Boohoo. I know. The Kansas City Times on Thursday, May 17th, 1906 announced that Jenkins would arrive that Saturday and would be training at the Blue Diamond headquarters. The same article claimed that Gotch was recovering from his match against Pietro, the Italian wrestler. It's, again, it's always interesting to see some matches clearly being seen as throwaways with no real stakes leading up to the big match like Gotch versus Jenkins. Nobody was really looking at Pietro, the Italian wrestler, to upset Frank Gotch and ruin Gotch's plans for a title match. It was just a throwaway because again nobody expects the champ to lose at a house show the betting for the match was even money leading into the week of the big showdown it was seen as gotch being the younger and more aggressive wrestler and jenkins relying on his strength weight and experience gotch was clearly exuding confidence he told the kansas city times quote i know that i am going up against the best man in the business But nevertheless, I will be the champion as soon as our engagement is finished in the convention hall. I have everything to gain and nothing to lose. He is the champion today, but Thursday he will be what is known as an X. The same article from May 22nd reported that, quote, advanced sales of seats for the show, which was commenced at convention hall yesterday morning, has been unusually large and everything points to a crowded house. Many mail orders have been received, especially from different points in Iowa. So Gotch's hometown fans were gobbling up tickets from afar, and I wonder how the mail, telegram, whatever fees stacked up against Ticketmaster online sales fees. Are you mad just thinking about those? Me too. Papers coast-to-coast recapped the previous meetings and endless drama between Gotch and Jenkins. Despite it being yet another rematch, The tone felt different, more important, more exciting. The St. Joseph News Press claimed that 5,000 people, a fourth of which were women, filled the convention hall in Kansas City to witness the title match. Farmer Burns claimed it was the hardest-fought match on the mat he had ever seen and that the crowd was the largest he ever saw at a wrestling crowd. Jenkins weighed 218 pounds and Gotch weighed 192, gotch was a decade younger than the champion quote it was a contest of muscle science and nerve fit for the gods at five minutes after nine o'clock the gong sounded and both men sprang at each other like bulls. jenkins looked much heavier and more solid both men struggled all over the ring jenkins got the first fall in 26 minutes and 36 seconds Gotch started towards him to get a low leg hold, but missed his mark and fell at the feet of his antagonist, who quickly saw his chance to win. He grabbed Gotch with a half Nelson and barlock, and finally pinned his shoulders to the match with a full back hatch. After a rest of ten minutes, the men re entered the ring for one of the most bitter struggles ever witnessed by Kansas Cityans. Gotch took the offense at the start and kept it up, while Jenkins loafed. Gotch began twisting Jenkins' right foot and ankle, and there was the beginning of the end. He let Jenkins out of a half Nelson and a crotch hold only to catch his foot in midair and twist it in a perfect circle. It is one of the most cruel holds known to wrestling, and a look of agony spread over Jenkins' face as the bones began to creak, and the muscles almost tore loose from their holdings. He swung over on both shoulders to give up, but when Gotch released him, he could not rise at once. His right leg was all but broken. The time of the fall was 14 minutes, and 30 seconds, and the crowd went wild with cheers for Gotch. The third fall was all for Gotch, and it did not take long to see that a new champion was to leave convention hall. The leg which Gotch had given such a twisting was swollen, and Jenkins could hardly bear his weight upon it. Gotch grabbed it the first thing and gave it another turn for good luck. He kept continually at his opponent's leg, and soon the torture began to show on the big champion. With a half-Nelson and a crotch hold, Gotch slowly rolled the famous grappler over and pinned both shoulders to the mat after a tussle of 17 minutes and 15 seconds. As referee Dave Porteous patted Gotch on the back, 5,000 people shouted themselves hoarse in honor of the new champion of America. Gotch immediately issued a challenge to Hackenschmidt and, quote, the young champion received an ovation that would make proud a United States senator. According to the Kansas City Star on May 24th, the match the night before was a record-breaking crowd, and Gotch claimed it was a bigger crowd than the match he and Jenkins had at Madison Square Garden. And Gotch knew how to pop the Kansas City fans, saying, quote, wrestling will always be a popular sport as long as it is in good hands. Keep out the fakers and the public will take to the grappling game better than fighting. I have always been out to win, and that's the reason i am a good drawing card the missouri athletic club has set a standard and if they keep up to it kansas city will be the greatest wrestling center in america that's how you get the uh, the crowd on your side everybody he claimed that he wanted to wrestle hackenschmidt in kansas city and that he would quote make him a proposition that he can't dodge the same issue criticized jenkins as having looked too fat to be in the best of condition and he probably did carry more weight than in other championship matches. The Buffalo Morning Express on May 29th quoted Jenkins as saying, the Russian lion will kill him, in references to Gotch's challenge to Hackenschmidt. It was pointed out by several sports writers that Hackenschmidt doesn't bait easily by people calling him out. He was the rare competitor who could turn down top opponents or make them wait it out on his schedule without losing an ounce of clout in the wrestling world i did find an an english article where he said i don't have time for this i'm booked out until 1908. whether it was mind games scouting his opponents properly making sure the potential opponent wasn't known for pulling shady business moves or even if hack was just an asshole He could withstand a storm of challenges and criticism and still be the top star in Europe. Everyone was waiting with excitement to see what Gotch did next. He had the world of sports wrapped around his finger. He was the champion. He was the top draw. And he was calling out the seemingly unbeatable George Hackenschmidt. But what about Jenkins? Usually there's a back and forth, excuse making, challenges for a rematch, that kind of thing or at least a few interviews on the way home. I really didn't find much until the June 3rd Des Moines Register, which in a greater article about Gotch at Farmer Burns, claimed that Gotch's footlock injured Jenkins so badly that the former champ needed a walking stick to get around and that, quote, his physicians decided that it would be a month or more before he could even begin training again. What was the story of all this? I'm going to assume it was a work because Jenkins Had a steady job, but he was a lightning rod in the press and in the wrestling world because he still had the title It was important to get the title off of him Not just for his own peace of mind. So people would leave him the hell alone It was important for the wrestling world as a whole because again, they needed to keep a continuity of the championship lineage They needed to have a champion who could be competing as often as humanly possible they needed a champion who could accept challenges that didn't rotate around school holidays at west point so this was important both for him as a human being and for the sport as a whole at least that's the way i see it and it wasn't until the july 10th rutland daily herald that i finally found jenkins poking at gotch for another match saying he would post a $1,000 forfeit to meet Gotch for a match for $2,500 per side anytime within a month. Quote, Jenkins training for the past few months, and Jenkins never had the reputation of ever doing any too much in that direction, has consisted of wrestling cadets at West Point, and of course, they could not give him enough work to keep his weight down. Consequently, he was fat, soft, and with a short supply of wind in his recent match with gotch the latter has yet to make answers to jenkins challenge but meanwhile fred Beale was challenging jenkins he had been wanting a match with him since before jenkins left for england after taking a beating in their backroom match Beale was now a top guy and saw jenkins as the stepping stone to gotch but did tom jenkins really want either match did the wrestling world at large? What drives a man when he's past his prime and has a steady paycheck and a nice government job? Where does he go from here? And a brief aside: from the Newcastle Herald, August 31st, 1906, I found Tom Jenkins' name in an article about work conditions in steel mills, claiming that the toughness he exhibited in the ring was born of his time in the steel mills. It was pretty much a half-page article romanticizing what we would now call terrifying and dangerous OSHA violations. From the October 16th, 1906 InterOcean, in an article about the upcoming Dan McLeod versus Fred Beal match, it hypes the legend versus young contender angle. But one sentence couldn't have helped Tom Jenkins' self-esteem or his image in the wrestling world. Quote, Old-timers who witnessed the bouts McLeod had with Evan Lewis, Duncan McMillian, Tom Jenkins, Farmer Burns, and other cracks are looking for him now to throw the Wisconsin man. So Jenkins is being lumped with the legends of the past. Not great when you were seen by many, and maybe even by yourself, as just being half a step behind the title, potentially reclaiming it at some point. And speaking of Farmer Burns... I noticed a resurgence in his career, I of course attribute it to Gotch's position as the champion and top star. Using Burns in the same capacity, the farmer used Gotch in the past, a policeman, entrusted scout and opponent when needed. The Kansas City Star quoted the former champ on November 26, 1906, quote, that if Beale throws Gotch, he, Thomas Jefferson Jenkins, will return to the mat and take another try for the championship. Did he mean it, or was he just talking because that's what he's used to doing? Who can say? Meanwhile, Beal and Gotch did a title switch switch back in December of 1906, possibly to elevate Beal beyond the need for a win over Jenkins, possibly to lure Hackenschmidt in for a match with Gotch under the false sense of Gotch's vulnerability, Maybe Gotch thought a match with Hackenschmidt was a sure thing and wanted the title off of his waist just in case and then it fell through. Who knows? But it 100% pushed Beale past any real need to drag Jenkins away from West Point for a match to elevate himself to the top of the business. Of course, this match would still be a hot draw and many promoters were doing their damnedest to make it happen. Other promoters were trying to get Jenkins to Russell Farmer Burns, Maybe the birth of a senior division, who can say, or the Greek demon, Dimitriol. The December 24th, 1906 Ottawa Journal and many other papers reported excitedly that Tom Jenkins challenged Alphonse Stours, a Belgian Greco-Roman champion, to a Greco-Roman match via telegraph after Stours made that open challenge in Montreal. The weirdest part, as you picked up on, the challenge was for a Greco-Roman match. A weird thing to do. I mean, Jenkins knew how to wrestle Greco-Roman, but that wasn't his speciality. That's the rule set he went in against Hackenschmidt and got smoked, but then again, so did everybody else against Hackenschmidt. So not exactly a realistic measuring tool for his skill level. And when I found this article, I was really excited to see if it was real, because a lot of these, you know, challenges, they pop up, And they don't really lead to anything. It might have just been him running his mouth. Could have been many different things. But it turned out to be legitimate. The Montreal Gazette on December 26, 1906. Jenkins is coming. Big wrestlers will be here to meet Stewarts on Friday. Jenkins is coming. Big wrestler will be here to meet Stewarts on Friday night. Quote, Tom Jenkins, sometime champion of America, has not been in Montreal for three years, but he will be here on Friday night, and on that occasion, he will wrestle Alphonse Stewart at Somer Park. In the article, they stated that it was the holiday break at West Point, thus Jenkins' ability to take the booking. So yes, it does now have that, like, old legend, taking a booking when it, like, works around his day job type of thing the, the part timer schedule it's it's a it's a wonderful thing and I'm sure he got a heck of a payday for putting that out there. The same paper the next night gave a rundown of the two men Stewart's 29 years old Jenkins 31. So yeah we're in deep in bullshit territory already. It put their heights as 58 versus 5'9, 212 pounds versus 210. So on paper, assuming they're being truthful, very close in stature. From the Montreal Star, December 28th, 1906. Leading up to his match against Alphonse Stewart, Tom Jenkins was asked about the dirty tricks in wrestling. Quote, if there is a trick that has not been played on me, he said, I want to see it. The greasing trick is one of the oldest, but I always see that my opponent is examined and I want to be examined myself. If I find that he is greased, I appeal to the referee to have him washed with alcohol and cleaned up. If he is a hard man, I may claim the match then, as I have the right to do so, although I have never yet done so. There are 40 kinds of grease you can use, and most of them are indiscernible until a man gets to sweating. Take cold cream, cocoa butter, and a lot of others. Rub them in right and you will never come out or show until you sweat. You can only discern them by sense of smell. Talk about greasy men. You out to wrestle one of those Turks? Greasy, while a lard can is resin compared to them. The worst dose I ever got was from Ed Atherton, when I was an amateur, with whom I wrestled over four hours in a draw. He had powdered resin in the soles of his shoes. Every now and then, he would get behind me when I was on the mat. He would rub his knuckles against his soles and then get a body lock, would draw the rough resin knuckles up my body from the waist to my chin he almost disemboweled me wow but dramatic storytelling aside they hyped the match as being for the championship of america for some reason because again if you're going to have a big match you might as well make it a title match but how did the match go from the montreal gazette december 29th 1906 Broke Stuer's arm, Belgian giant compelled to retire after scoring one fall against Jenkins. 4,000 people showed up for the match, and apparently it was, um, not great. Quote, The match was slow, the big fellows ineffectively tugging at each other's necks and arms most of the time. Jenkins, who looked fat, was announced to weigh 210 pounds, and Stuer's 4 pounds heavier. The big crowd was impatient and buried shouts of disapproval at the big fellows, but this had no effect. After tugging at each other for an hour and 39 minutes, aside, guys, phrasing, Stewart scored on a flying fall, which was awarded by the referee and disputed by Jenkins. While the wrestlers were on the mat, with Jenkins under, the Belgian threw him over a shoulder. The American landed flat on his shoulders. It looked like a clean flying pin but Jenkins claimed that only pinfall should count. When he landed on his shoulders, Jenkins was separated by a yard from his opponent. It was claimed that Storrs had an arm injury going into the match, and when the match resumed, Jenkins caught Storrs by his injured arm and gave it a wrench. Storrs wasn't able to continue, and doctors who examined the injured member declared that a bone near the elbow had been fractured. The match was declared a no contest in accordance with the European-style Greco-Roman rules, which Jenkins protested, claiming he should be the winner via forfeit. The crowd, of course, voiced their disapproval, if you will. So, good lord, what a story to tell and how not to tell it. There is a time and a place for the big match where the big star is injured or does an injury and it's declared a no contest declared a disqualification but the match has to mean something it has to be meaningful in the bigger picture of things you can have a match between two guys in a rivalry or a guy who's on his way up or a guy who's barely defending the title or resorting to dirty tricks to defend the title Things that'll produce the good kind of heat. The kind of heat that make people want to buy tickets for a rematch. The sort of heat that gets people emotionally involved in pro wrestling. The sort of heat which people will be discussing angrily while drunk later, not going home feeling like they got ripped off. A Greco-Roman rules match is not very exciting. And thus, having somebody protesting the rules for a injury or a flying fall or a no contest doesn't make it exciting and makes them look stupid because they should know the rules it doesn't build anything it doesn't grow the emotional connection to one man or the other it doesn't make a title switch look dubious though authentic it doesn't make a contender look like they were cheated or cheated on their way up it's a one-off match where a guy past his prime should be like if this were pro wrestling today somebody like jenkins should be coming to your town and putting over the local champion thanking the promoter for their payday and going home without a problem in their soul instead we have that type of setup match but it's a guy who's not going to be wrestling again until the next break in classes it's a guy who you know is not in heavy circulation There's no point, really, in getting emotionally involved in his win-loss record. It is a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing. But what lesson would he learn from this? Would he even learn a lesson? Where would he go from here? What would be his next step? Did he care about wrestling? Was it just too deep in his blood to ever give it up, even though maybe it was time to give it up? Well, we can't say, well, I mean, I could say, but I'm not going to because we're out of time. This story is now very much winding down, but it's not done quite yet. So this is the conclusion of part eight of the story of Tom Jenkins. I'm certainly hoping you're enjoying this ride with me. I certainly hope you're appreciating the work that I'm putting into this. I hope you're enjoying the details of this story as I'm presenting them. And if you don't already, like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter. Same thing with Instagram. Um, I like to post all these headlines and articles and photos that I find just so you too can kind of see the oddness of the source material, if you will. And otherwise, if you feel like donating a few bucks to the research funds, books aren't free, access to archives aren't free, hosting the podcast isn't free. By all means, I would do this for free no matter what. But you know what, if you have a couple of dollars you're not using, I would happily take them. That's in the description of the show. But for now, it's time to call it a day, call it a night, wherever you are, however you're listening, whatever you're doing at whatever time. Thanks for being here with me, and I'll talk to you next time.